0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, before we get started, I wanted to let you know about an upcoming Architecture on Stage event you might be interested in. At the Barbican Concert Hall this Friday, that's February 26th, the Architecture Foundation is inviting leading architects and housing experts to set out their vision for a renaissance of public housing. Chaired by former Peabody Development Director Claire Benny, panelists include Puja Agrawal, Melis Howard, Paul Karakusevich, Adam Kahn, Osama Shush, Joseph Zeal Henry, Russell Curtis, and Astrid Smitham, who you'll be hearing more from in a minute. To find out more about the talk and to book your tickets, follow the link in the show notes, and I hope to see you there. All right, now into the show. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with Nicholas Lobo Brennan and Astrid Smitham of Apparata, a London-based architecture practice that's been thrust into the spotlight this past year following the completion of their experimental housing project, A House for Artists. Nick and Astrid established Apparata in 2014, have taught together at the Royal College of Art, and currently run a design studio at the Kingston School of Art in London. Before setting up practice, Astrid was briefly a screenwriter in Berlin, and Nick worked for Peter Zumthor in Switzerland and Florian Bagel's Architecture Research Unit in London, as well as teaching with Tom Emerson at ETH, where he helped establish the studio's life-build projects. Nick also co-founded a practice called Gruppe in 2011. Until recently, Apparata's work focused mostly on subtle refurbishments of existing buildings, including the Old Manor Park Library in Newham and the White House in Dagenham, two projects commissioned by the nonprofit Create London. A House for Artists, also commissioned in part by Create, marks a real departure, though. Instead of adapting existing structures, the project proposes a model of housing that feels radical and new to London, in terms of the social life it makes possible between neighbours, as well as the public life it invites into its ground floor. This interview is a little different than usual. Instead of tracing the entire arc of Nick and Astrid's practice, we really focus on this one project, its urban context, and the ideas embedded in the building itself, which we visited together last week on a brisk January afternoon. I met Nick and Astrid outside Barking Station, which is where the interview begins. Just to kind of situate us, we've just left the Costa Coffee across from Barking Station. I'm with Nick and Astrid, and we're on our way to a House for Artists. (laughs) And we're warming up.
1: It's like being uh, the beginning of Star Trek, (laughs) Star
0: Date 24. I think it's interesting to start recording here because you, you talk a lot, both of you, when you talk about the building, about the route to the front door, and in a way, it begins on the street. So to talk about this building, this specific project, really is to talk about this part of Barking, this part of the city.
2: Yeah, I think we always like to meet people at the station, not right at the beil- building. That way we can see the high street, usually a market.
0: Sorry,
1: should we go this should
2: we Yeah, let's cross here.
0: You two must have done this walk thousands of times by now.
1: Uh,
0: we know all the good places for lunch. Uh-huh. <laughs> what stands out to you on your way to the site? What are you fond of?
2: There's no empty shops for a start. It's like a really lively high street with loads and loads of independent shops. I don't know if it's like London from 20 years ago or something that's where it feels like a lot is still possible. I don't know. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think so. I agree. I think it feels like a high street uh, that it doesn't feel like there aren't so many. London High Street's left with this character anymore. Right. So down here, there's a market that's uh, several times a week. Um, and you can get whatever you can. Basically, you you don't have to leave the high street almost. You can get whatever you want in the high street. This is incredible. And this I know street. what
0: you mean, though. It's like th- there's not yet that sense of a corporate monoculture. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And the street is not sanitized and sterile. Yeah. And it's bustling with all kinds of people.
1: It's extremely successful. Like, there's only a few other high streets I can think of like this still in
0: London. It, might, it makes me a little bit nostalgic, like the, the, the London of my, my, my childhood or something. And it's a compound that, that the sun is kind of hanging low in the sky now, it's around 2.30 or 3 o'clock. It's almost golden hour. There is a real kind of lambent nostalgia in the atmosphere right now. There is, yeah. I think everyone's happy it's
1: Friday. Yes.
0: And then this, this goes down to the river.
1: Uh, Where's the where there's the Barking Abbey, which is one of the former centers of British power a thousand years ago Uh, And the way we go is this way And here actually from here is interesting. You can really see the history of British development. You get those kind of uh, two three rise uh, um, Developments from I don't know the, the early 20th century then you get these kind of 60s, 70s, quite handsome blocks and then you get these newer towers with their sort of yeah. paper-thin facades.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these didn't exist when we started the project, so they're really new and wow. one building has been demolished, which...
1: Although, weirdly, we knew they were coming because uh, when, when we started the probe on the competition, we saw they had this master planning model that showed parking with very many towers that weren't there yet. Oh. And so we knew that was the, the kind of context um,
0: hadn't been built yet. Right. And just to situate us now, we're standing at this, in this square, this intersection. What is it called? Or
1: do we Station
2: know? Parade.
0: Station Parade.
2: And Linton Road is, is this one?
1: Completely. Then just down the road, just around the corner, there's a, the, uh, the Muff Ruin. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but a fantastic project we made this kind of pseudo ruin, and that's just next to a large HMM development so yeah there's uh, and also just nearby there's a Peter Barber there's two Peter Barber's so Barking Central has has been quite supportive of of, uh, architects in many ways
0: we're approaching the project now which is very demurely revealing itself as we get closer sandwiched in between two other projects.
1: The idea is it comes from, it's like part of a parade of yeah. buildings, largely public, that come from the Market Street down to uh, the estates The estate here used to be a kind of very typical post war figure ground estate. It was deemed to have failed and it was knocked down. Debates as to whether it should be knocked down or not, but what they put in its place was this. Um, are urbanism based on streets from the last 20, 20 years um, and the site is the leftover site of the construction office um, and the idea is that when you first come across it it has more the character of a public building than say housing I think there's an ongoing debate in London about what does what should housing look like housing what does housing mm-hmm. look like uh, and for this we were kind of saying no this is really um, it needs to have a of like presence of a pub building one one because it, it is a, a public building on, on the ground floor and serves the public but also in light of having these towers appearing around it it needs to have a certain ability to to stand against those there's a very nice drawing by lena bobadi hand uh, byro drawing that she does of the um sesc uh, pompeia um, squat tower and she has all these Extremely tall towers drawn around behind it um, and there's a note saying there's this kind of future of towers coming and this little building has to be able to withstand it. Should we go over here and then maybe let's have a I mean let's get, we'll keep it quite brief right so we'll just go over there so you can see
0: the other side and then we'll have a look from here and go in and then we'll go upstairs. So we're just passing by the kind of front facing loggia I'd call it? Yeah. The deeper balcony which is also the deck access and we're passing by the ground floor workshop space. Or yeah,
1: artist so space. This is a
2: public art space at the front and the artists contribute to running a public program there for the local community uh, so it has a huge number of different events like uh, after school clubs or coffee mornings or games nights, also drawing workshops. So it's it's not that the artists have to practice their art there in terms of the workshops, but whatever they find out from the community is needed. Mm-hmm.
0: And part of the agreement was in exchange for reduced rent, yeah. they offer back some public program yeah. in this ground floor space. Yeah half a day a week
2: roughly (laughs) but we wanted that public space to feel like it's capturing a piece of the street um, with quite a low threshold to entry so you can see what's going on um, in quite a light way and then decide whether to go in or not so no lobby or forecourt or
1: because the, the reason being is, cultural institutions have a, a sort of literal problem with the threshold entry. Like, if, if the cultural institution is too far away from, say, the street edge, it, it can be, an, you know, can be an intimidating thing to approach. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, it's just a kind of, yeah, capture three. So the street. So just to say, it's this thing talking about it, having a kind of public character. When we started designing it, we started with the ground floor and went up. But also, with housing, the idea was that we start with the interior of the apartment and work outwards. Mm -hmm. There can be a tendency to start with 1-500 massing and do certain views from the street, and then then there's a sort of pressure on designers to then squeeze in as many units as possible, right? Uh, Which can cause some issues. Mm -hmm. So here we have sort of coming from two different start from the interior of the apartments, Mm -hmm. and also as a public building.
0: I know there's a, there's a reflexive and necessary way of speaking about architecture as a functional thing to a general audience yeah, that serves a certain kind of pragmatic purpose. Yeah. But just looking at it from here, there's a lot going on that um, you might feel like you, you wouldn't have license to talk about, but to me is totally worth talking about for a moment. And so first of all, so we're looking at the corner which is like the most expressive or kind of creaturely corner of the building, which has this triangular projection with a circular window at the top. And then the facade facing the street is almost entirely blank, except for the ground floor workshop and one square window on the second floor. And you can see a bit of the silhouettes of the shadows of buildings across the street that kind of play it on this blank concrete facade. And then What's interesting to me is on the ground floor with the workshop, the glazing pushes out almost to the edge of the building, whereas it steps back around the corner. So the the workshop's kind of meeting the street really intimately. And then there's this funny thing going on with a pier in between the glazing. The pier is projecting a bit more than everything else. So I think there's something odd about this there's something that invites you to look again do a double take yeah. and ask some questions the other thing is there's another loggia around the back which is much narrower which is satisfying some fire escape um, strategy I think But which also it's t-
1: nice to have a place to step out from your bedroom absolutely that's ultimately the reason uh-huh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah I mean I don't know which bit to address first, but yeah, uh-huh. it, is, it is addressing fire and that was one of the first things that we had to address when we were designing housing in the UK. Mm-hmm. So from the beginning we did speak with uh, Beryl Menzies, uh, who's a fire, fire consultant and had really good conversations also about uh, extended family living and why one might want to live in a different way than is usually possible in apartments, mm-hmm. and the, almost the only way that you could really achieve that kind of adaptability and flexibility in an apartment was to have exits from each room, so onto these walkways that both go around to the stair, and that just freed up the plan to be quite different to what you usually get in the UK with a small internal corridor that eats up a big chunk of your floor plan. Mm.
1: But also, of course, when you're doing an architecture project, every decision has has multiple decisions within it, right? So if you're trying to think about housing, you're trying to think about how, how can you um, give a kind of variety to the home in the sense that, uh, homes are sort of as, as units and they're you know they're 21 degrees and they have th- x amount of this x x amount of that they're done in a spreadsheet and then they're given a, a nice facade or whatever you want not, not nice facade and so we're always in the idea of kind of depths sort of constructional depths right um, and what that means is that it becomes one places for the body to occupy you know I can sit here I can sit there different times of day but also for the eye right um, I think Architecture really, uh, at its best, kind of keeps you company somehow, right? And that's because of what you said. You can go back and have a look. It's just maybe um, we sort of hope the building speaks for itself because you, you know, you, it'd be perfectly possible to speak very el- eloquently and sensitively about nothing, right? But um, so we hope that you know. We don't have to say anything, oh, right. <laughs> you know, in a certain sense. The worst way to say a podcast.
0: It's kind of unreal. Like, it seems like it's not... Yes, doesn't, that's good. It doesn't quite belong.
1: No, well, yeah, okay, we'd put it slightly different. What we like is the idea that uh, a building might uh, communicate, the sense that it's, it's a model, it's a series of decisions. So if... Uh, so how can you say... so? Well, maybe we could do this.
0: We could look at the buildings beside it for a second first. It's not to critique them, but it's to say that, like most of the city, these buildings are products of regulations. And they're responding to uh, existing constraints. And they're doing it well and fine. And then I think the building in the middle, your building, is understanding constraints, but seeking out an alternative within them. And you are talking about models before, both of you are interested in this theme of models and how, you know, to borrow a phrase from the title of a book um, you co-edited, we in fact live in models. That the project, the built project, is just the most recent iteration of the model. It's the final model, but it's still in process somehow. And there's this surreal feeling that when you think about architecture that way, everything becomes provisional and changeable everything becomes possible again when you think of the built fabric as just a collection of models
1: yeah but it's also important for the person who lives in it right because then you're not saying this is the final status i need i need photos of the thing and they need to be empty you know in architecture has to be way more robust than that and way more generous than that uh yeah i mean it's the famous point you know when you leave the building when it's finished, it's not really finished, right? It's, it's still got its whole life to make itself.
2: Yeah, I think, what was the term you used? It was like that it's everything's possible or still changeable. I think that's really important to us. And I think we started even when we were just doing, say, um, studios at Old Manor Park Library, but that you you let people know what's structural and what isn't, so they know what to screw into and what not to screw into. And then you you don't have to say very much because if you've done that, then it's intuitive that you can change it. And it's like an invitation to change it. And um, you don't even have, you don't have to prescribe the changes. Yeah, it's
1: to be intuitive. It's very important to us.
2: It's just that it should speak for itself. And that's mm-hmm. the, concrete ceilings here, they're left exposed as well. You you can see that you can hang things from it, you can join to it. Um, and we, we gave the residents handbooks as well, where we showed site photos of what's behind the top layer of the build-up, so that they know what's underneath their floor and what's in their walls. And I think housing shouldn't be a mystery or your home shouldn't be a mystery where you just you're knocking on the wall trying to figure it out then you should you should know but i think there is also another kind of ambiguity uh, in terms of like it's not it's not saying that it's housing and it is but it could also be a school like the the apartments are about the size of a classroom so you could have a Primary school in there, or you could have workshops.
1: Well, well this so one th- just to sort of to inter- interrupt one thing's going kind of what Astrid's saying. This is we should see her drawings about it, but trying to there's some problems with the idea of type typology, right? And that what lies underneath typology, and so the building's trying to work with that as well. Um, is there just a city type, you know, potentially rather than it's a school? It's yep.
0: housing. That's so true. It's so ambiguous, especially from the street elevation. It almost feels like an institution of some kind. And in fact, its name, a house for artists, also yeah, yeah. suggests it's not a typical kind of dwelling. So we're just coming through okay. the courtyard now?
1: The ground floor. True, sure we do Just it? go through the ground
0: floor. Okay. okay. We got a glimpse of the Grayson oh. Perry sculpture. Who was an advocate for this scheme? What was his role exactly?
2: Like you say, he was an advocate, like, which I think is really important with like, an unusual scheme.
0: So we've just come into the, the workshop space now.
2: And he worked with Create on the selection process for the artists as well. Um,
0: To help choose the tenants. Yeah, Mm. and
2: how how you choose the tenants as well?
0: It's uh, the ground floor is still a work in progress,
1: Um, so there's two locations the kitchen could go. Um, It seems like the kitchen will stay at the back. They're just uh, planning to put in a um, decided to put um, a kiln and a and a clay workshop, which we can see. Okay. And at the front, we could. I mean, there's no one here now, but we could we could show you what goes on but there's all kinds of things like one of one, the artists uh, in a very straightforward sense will run uh, a, a live drawing class or um, another one will, uh, another one of them is, is working on doing um, um, demonstration
0: posters um, And just to paint a picture there are work desks and chairs and foldable screens and pallets stacked up against the walls and shelves of tools and board games and <laughs> it really does, it is a community center in a way. Again, I think the, the the idea is that they have this
1: first, the idea is that there's this first period where it's about figuring out what works with the community and what spaces they want. And the ground floor is planned in such a way that it's very short spans to have to add walls should you want. So it's kind of clear where the walls can go, but they shouldn't necessarily go every, every, everywhere. So it's, it seems like what's going to happen is there'll be one here, mm-hmm. and there'll be one there, and there'll probably be another one at the front. And this is the ceramic space? Yes, this is the beginning of it, yeah. And there's the kiln. Yeah, and this is...
2: Should we go up this way? Yeah, why not? Yeah.
1: We walk.
0: Sure,
1: oh, do you want to go and see the um, sculpture? Sure,
2: yeah, because so it might be dark soon so...
0: So we just left the lobby and we're back out in the courtyard now, which is a pretty—it's a conventional courtyard, all paved, hard surface, and then there's this eccentric, um, childlike construction of a house or a series of houses. It looks like it's made of cardboard, but it's probably made of metal, and yeah. it's up on this um, funny, kind of flamboyant pedestal. And this is the Grayson Perry piece. It's his yes. first public sculpture,
1: yeah. really.
2: I think it's the house he grew up in and his neighbor's house.
1: It it's, it resembles uh, the housing um, in Dagenham Estate, Pecknurry Estate. Okay. It's not that, but it, um, it recalls it, which is in the same borough and was once the world's biggest council estate.
0: Mm. And it's an homage to the, just the importance of social housing? Yeah, to, to the suburbs, to, uh, to the semi, to the, to the
1: terrace, you know, that kind of particular type of British life and housing. And yes, it's supposed to look like cardboard, but now it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's metal. Well, I think it was, it's supposed to look up.
2: like something that might be in one of these back gardens, like right. that somebody's like made a themselves, house, almost. like a some DIY project.
0: Mm-hmm. There's something very clearly naïve about it as a sculpture, and to me it suggests just how easy this can be, <laughs> or how intuitive it is to live well or live comfortably. I mean, aesthetically, it's totally at odds with the building itself, which is incredibly severe by comparison. It's monolithic and massive and angular. But I think the ideas and the aspirations for warmth and conviviality are probably the same as we'll discover as we go upstairs and walk along these these yeah. shared uh, outdoor corridors. I think we were interested in the idea that uh, the idea that
1: the building can have the material it has, but can still be light and jolly somehow. Um,
2: so it could also be stacked children's blocks. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's quite legible how it's put together.
1: Hmm. So this is so just say this is it's solid concrete. There's no, it's one it's one continuous piece. Okay.
2: But it's also structural, so it's not cladding. Yeah. It's its structural and its façade and its prevention of spread of flames, so it kind of does all those roles.
1: Yeah, I, the project originally was a, 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 a glue-lamb post and beam module with a precast concrete façade. Um, and then um, Grenfell happened, it was designed for Grenfell, and they in the industry, let's say, there was a sort of some lack of confidence in timber, an inappropriate lack of confidence in timber, right? So it became very, very ambiguous as to what the rules were going to become. So the project ended up having to be in completely conventional materials, right, traditional materials. So the options were steel or concrete Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, But that gave an opportunity to kind of actually refine the pro- pro- project, strip it back, try and see what it's really doing. The, the intriguing thing is, is once you do that, then you really have to count count the, the, the amount of carbon per meter squared, right? The suddenly becomes, it grabs retention attention, more,
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it seems to be a, a struggle that a lot of architects are facing now between these competing constraints of fire safety and carbon. The timber construction is no longer possible above a certain height in the city Mm. and yet the alternatives are so carbon intensive but this is concrete that's been mixed with other materials
2: it's got GGBS substitute which um, it does lower the carbon Um, it's it's also kept quite lean so um, that's probably the more important thing in terms of Uh, Besides the concrete that you see, everything else is super light. GGBS isn't the solution for the long run because it actually comes from the steel industry. So it was a response for a particular moment in time rather than what we'd say is um, the approach we should keep using Mm -hmm. for the next 20, 30 years.
0: So should we go
1: upstairs? Should we walk up or go...
0: Uh, Let's walk, yeah. So, we just come in through the lobby and we're walking up through an external stair, which is concrete with uh, aluminum balustrades. And you can see
1: all the products from the pavers to these, it's all just normal stuff, right?
2: Um, so it was really important to us that any shared spaces are also places of encounter that are nice to be in mm-hmm. <laughs> that you might actually stay and chat mm-hmm. like have good light and fresh air and uh, so we're really pleased that the lift lobby has been used for dinner really? so the, yeah, yeah. In, summer. in summer
0: and it's funny like you call it a lift lobby but it's a patio yeah
1: it's, it's a
2: it long. is yeah well you you get a really great view. Yeah.
0: I, th- I think
1: the important thing is when we're when we talking we talk about the project in the studio, we, we, we don't use the term circulation. Yeah. Um, there isn't really circulation. There's people's private apartments and there's collective space, or, uh-huh. and that's it. Because the problem with circulation is it's a monofunctional idea. So in this project, nothing has a monofunction, be it, be it uh, uh,
0: an element or a space, right? Mm-hmm. so we're standing on the top floor the fourth floor of the lift lobby and we're looking out across East London and there's two possible routes there's one that wraps around into a very deep balcony or a loggia and then there's another much narrower route that um, kind of disappears around a corner like how wide should we go? We go okay. how wide is this?
2: Uh, it's about 75 centimetres.
0: Okay. So it's this little catwalk. And then there's a low gate. We can just open? Or?
2: Uh, yes, no. open. I don't know if somebody's in this apartment, right, so... Right, yeah,
0: okay, they're and they're this not, is interesting. April's not in there. No? Yeah.
2: Yeah, this is the kind of negotiate where you have to
0: decide uh, if you're going to, because it's an open walkway, but you're passing someone's back door, I guess, and it's almost entirely glazed. Um, So there's a question about when, when, when circulating around the building uh, constitutes a kind of trespass. (laughs) Because
2: I think it's. um, it's about sort of respectful negotiation rather than trespassing necessarily that i think on each floor uh you'll establish your own patterns of movement and i mean we've talked to like all the residents a lot and like they've they've only ever said positive things about having a shared terrace like often you know that it it's really valuable to them to have that kind of shared space and that seeing neighbors pass is this kind of feeling of safety and something they enjoy rather than a kind of intrusion Um, and that might be one of the biggest assumptions that the project challenged is the sort of British idea of privacy yes and the idea that we all really need a lot of privacy Um, And one resident put it really nicely that she felt like she'd been fed the lie that she doesn't need community all her life and that privacy was really important to her and that she found that she had to give up a tiny amount of privacy to gain this whole new thing that she'd never had, which was a community. And now she feels she has a community Mm. and thinks that's something she was missing out on that might have been useful at other times of her life and um, yeah I think that was quite important to us too
1: I think the other sit. thing is almost no one has put curtains up that is interesting because actually you have to one from the street you can't really see um, and two
0: is actually you have to really want to see inside there to see it right mm-hmm. Um, and so along this deeper uh, loggia, the flats are almost fully glazed. They lo- look almost like shop fronts, with yeah. the riser stalls on other side of the door. The, the important thing to say is that
1: that you get your apartment of a certain size, and you get twenty five percent extra outside space. One is really yours because you only really people use it for just stepping up from their bedroom, uh-huh. the back, and this one people really share. Mm. Uh, um, and that's very unusual to come to an apartment whereby the largest main living space is located on the shared space.
2: I mean it's also quite different to decks in general like um, decks are usually either quite narrow mm-hmm. or quite deep uh, but almost always you're not allowed to furnish them yes. so they're never social spaces.
0: And the concern is that you, you're obstructing the Escape
2: route. Yeah, usually they are the single uh, route of egress from a fire, and that means you can't furnish them. So that's why having the two sides is really important, because that means you can furnish this one and it's a sociable space. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other side has to be kept clear.
0: Right. And it also means you can have more glazing, because uh, as I understand it, if it's a single yeah. escape route, then you need much yeah. more... Fire-rated surface. Yeah,
2: or you can't have any glass for the first 1.1 meters. Mm -hmm. Um, So the two-sided nature is important in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, So here the windows start at seat height, so the sills can be seats as well.
1: Should we sit here? Should we sit? Do you want to to sit there?
0: Yeah, sure. A drink? Sure, if you're having one.
2: I'll put the kettle on.
0: And we're joined by a feline friend
2: Daisy
0: Daisy and um, in case it wasn't clear we have just stepped into a residence flat who's generously given it up for an hour or two while we sit and talk I think the thing that's interesting and you picked up on
1: it at the beginning I'm not sure if this is interesting for your show but um, when you're doing a project like this you basically have to spend years never speaking about architecture. You have to speak only in terms of why someone's idea or suggestion about adding a corridor or reducing the glazing won't meet guidelines mm-hmm. for some reason, right? So you constantly have, you kind of, pro- the building is like a kind of equation with these interlaced parts, uh, and you're constantly saying, well, this equation doesn't work if you change that, and that's the thing that you use to defend it for years. Mm-hmm. So we've become very focused on that explanation. The, the so logical argument. The logical mm-hmm. argument. For
0: illogical decisions. Seemingly illogical well, decisions. No,
1: I, I well, no, I think that's completely wrong, actually, because I think the way we do housing majority in Britain is illogical. Like, why would you subject people to these bizarre experiments? Yeah. So I would say, I would say it's logical in, in the sense that you're trying to make someone's life better. You know, you get a loggia back and front, you have adaptability. And then, yeah, there is a heavy uh, cultural practice com- com- component that comes along with that. But I think one goes hand in hand with the other. You can't really have one or the other, right? Yeah. I mean, I say, understand?
0: yeah, I say illogical entirely, know, facetiously. No, I know, I know, I know. Because the logic must be pleasure and delight. Yes, exactly. And the logic for pleasure and delight. Well-being. wellbeing. And exactly.
1: <laughs> pleasure and It's happiness. so hard to argue <laughs> for
2: pleasure and delight Which and is well-being. Why you don't mention it. You don't mention it yeah, once. Yeah. You don't even mention good light or outdoor space. You, it's really just... Um, you only talk about meeting sufficient light levels or sufficiency. Um, it's really hard to argue for pleasure. Right. Or just quality of life. Be nice. We, I Do you I think
1: it'd be nice if someone... Take milk?
2: Uh,
0: black is fine.
2: Okay.
1: The best way to see the building is to spend the day here. <laughs> or spend it up the morning or afternoon. Because then you see the light changing. Um, and you really get... It sort of it strikes almost anyone who does that. It, it, you sort of get
0: what the purpose of the building is somehow, right? Which is pleasure and delight. Astrid, I'm really interested in this anecdote of this resident who was telling you she felt like she'd been fed this lie about privacy. Mm -hmm. How do you go about convincing people that this was a good idea?
2: We're so concerned about um, privacy and safety almost to the exclusion of everything else. So um, as a result, most the typical UK apartment building typology is that you have a long uh, artificially lit, artificially ventilated corridor with lots of fire doors and some plant room doors and it's a hostile space, a really unpleasant space, a sort of also creepy, surreal, weird space um, that actually people don't feel safe in. (laughs) Mm. We've spoken with other residents where we used to live in a place like that. I used to just try to get into my house as quickly as possible. It's creepy. Hmm. And yet that's, that's the, what has become established as a kind of norm of safety. And whereas here everyone talks about feeling safe precisely because they feel seen. There's uh, women living alone that feel safe when they come home, um, that have lived in other places where they wonder if anyone's going to notice if they don't come home at night. Um, hmm. Because in most places in the u k you probably wouldn't know, and then this this feeling of being seen that um, that no one could go hungry here that you uh, you see your neighbors it's actually a feeling of safety and
1: um, so one, one of the residents said that as well right this idea that you're never going to go yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah yeah that's that's what one of the residents said as well and I suppose in terms of convincing people that basically quite an unfamiliar idea that you question the very foundation of how most apartment buildings are arranged and say that that's actually not working. Um, And In a way that was possible here precisely because it was um, for artists. So it gave this perhaps this Trojan horse to ideas that might be applicable more widely but it was possible to say so because it was artists. And that that was, that was applied to quite a few things, because I think, you know, we can talk about whether it's appropriate to have um, affordable housing that's specifically for artists, but in this case it made a lot possible that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Because we were able to talk about things like artists need adaptable homes, they need uh, good uh, ceiling height, they need good daylight, um, as if this was unique to artists. Mm. Um, So it just gave it a license for approaching housing in a different way, which I think now that it exists, we can also say might apply to other people as well.
1: Mm. I think for us from the beginning it was the house for everybody. Um, As Astrid Saochi described it, it was a kind of way in it's a way into question the, the, the typology that the dominant typology that's emerged in the uk a way to uh, unpick that and not do it and start again like not go with all the assumptions of housing presently in mm-hmm. the, the majority of housing
0: today i wonder if we could go back a bit and talk about um the lines that brought you two together and the kind of context around your own work that led to the formation of Apparata as a practice. And Astra, just starting with you, you were an artist before you were an architect.
2: Well, I mean, we, we both had an art background and then um, switched to architecture quite early, but we mm. both studied art first.
0: I didn't know, Nick, that you were also an art student. Originally, yeah, okay. Um, and then I switched. And when did you switch? First year. Okay. So there's a difference. <laughs> same first year. We both.
2: Yeah. did We did. First, we we then... did.
1: We did one year, uh-huh. and foundation. Da da da.
0: So I just want to get this straight in my mind. So you both just studied art for a year, and then around the same time swapped into architecture. Yeah. But okay. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You went to China.
2: Yeah, I lived in Shanghai for a while.
0: Uh, None of this is on, your, on the bios I could find. <laughs> yeah, I read that you were a, a practicing painter in Berlin and a screenwriter, is that true as well?
2: Um, I did write a little bit, yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Oh you did? Um, She's obsessed with it. So she knows how no, to... I, and I
2: find it very interesting, like I still find it interesting how but stories are structured and...
1: But to this day you still do basically script consultation work for people.
2: Well, friends yeah. sometimes. Yeah. But, really? Um, like, I, writing for a film? Um, I, don't, I don't write at the moment. I just find it interesting. And mm-hmm. I find it interesting to read about it and um, think about it.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in, I guess, this initial impulse from both of you to pursue a career in art and fine art first and then this very rapid transition into architectural practice. And what that turning point was, how did that happen? What was the, the kind of longing you were trying to satisfy in approaching a career in architecture that, that art itself couldn't achieve?
2: I think I find constraints interesting. And I think artists have to sort of find their own constraints and, and set their own constraints to work. Um, and Perhaps design and architecture is where you also take other constraints from the world, from the client, from the budget. Um, and I think I find that quite fruitful to, to think about and try to sort of be in the market, and in inverted commas, to sort of work within that to still question the market and what's typically done?
1: I can definitely attest that Astrid does like to try and figure out this sort of complicated mess of certain type of, like you, you have the built environment, these typologies get thrown up and they're, and they're made from a very complicated mix of things. Mm. And how do you unpick them and reconstruct them in a way that almost seems unlikely, um, but for, for particular ends of having something that is both Uh, like you say, it's more pleasurable to live with, but um, is more clearly a cultural practice.
0: But it seems like it was always a really expansive discipline in both your imaginations. Maybe, Nick, it was you who said this in an interview, that as an architectural designer, you can construct things, you construct drawings, you construct models, but you can also construct ideas. And architecture is a way of thinking, a way of seeing that gives shape to how you do things, I believe you should be able to make your way only as a writer and still be considered as an architect. I know this was like this was at the very beginning maybe of your self formation as a practitioner still believe it you, you still believe it okay absolutely. I couldn't decipher the expression on your face <laughs> absolutely
1: no, that's just my face <laughs>
0: <laughs> it seemed like maybe it was spurious, but I certainly believe in that I certainly in that um, it doesn't always need to be buildings. No. And yet you have this really concerted belief in the building itself as the communicative object, as the cultural object. Maybe this is actually a good opportunity to to now look outward towards um, influences that have shaped your thinking about architecture which may themselves not come from the discipline. I know Nick, you've spoken a lot about Saul Steinberg. Have I? Yeah. And the artist duo Fischley and Weiss. Have I? Yeah, yeah. And I, I want to talk about them in a moment. But maybe if we start Astrid with you, Nick mentioned that you'd written the screenplay in Berlin. I've never read. I'm just curious if, uh, if there is any kind of premonition in, in the, oh, in in the work of writing itself that might anticipate, um, for example, the project we're sitting in now. I feel like there's always some kind of clue in any creative work that precedes the architectural work and I'm kind of curious to explore that with you
2: maybe it was like an interest in sort of how people live perhaps um, I'd have to think about that one mm-hmm. whether there's a connection
0: I mean you said you're interested in the way people live the kind of lives of other people
2: well or Let's say a kind of early experience, which I think was quite influential on me, is also like how my grandma and great aunt lived. Like they always sort of found a way to sort of have like two apartments in the same building for decades. And it was kind of really normal as a kid to sort of run between these two apartments in the same building and this was like they were a really sort of happy way of living for them, that they would sort of take turns making lunch and we'd have these different kinds of places to play in. Like we'd make stuff with my great aunt, we'd do lots of sewing and um, uh, we'd sit and chat with my grandma. And it was these two different spaces in one building. And, um, and it was only sort of in the last six months or something that I realized that maybe that actually played quite a big role in how I thought about apartments, that you might, that a building might operate as a whole yeah. and have different spaces within it, but that you're, you can use all of them, or you can share them, or you can open them up, and um, that, that it was a kind of a more complete way of living than having just your little nuclear unit. Mm.
0: You've written in an editorial recently in The Guardian about how a lot of space standards are predicated on the assumption of a nuclear family when in fact families expand and contract in myriad ways. And oftentimes people live entirely alone. And so, yeah, what you're describing is like an expanded domain of occupation in a building.
2: And maybe a bit more porous and flexible
0: in that same editorial you've written that a spare room is often the first line of defense in a crisis whether personal or global and of course COVID really underscored that fact but I mean so can a divorce or an aging parent
2: yeah so many things or you think about uh grown-up children that might have been independent for a while and left for uni and then they realize that they can't make enough money to live or they're struggling again and then if your parents have a spare room then that can just bridge the gap until you figure things out. I mean, it's it, it applies in so many cases or uh, somebody's recovering from cancer but a year later they, they're on their feet again. It's just that spare bedroom just means people can figure it out within their own friendship and family structures. And it's it's bizarre that at the same time as cutting spending on social care you also penalize people for having spare bedrooms when that spare bedroom could actually in some cases save on the social care by having safety nets within people's own networks um, that you actually have safety and security through extended family Mm. Um,
0: until I read that in your essay, I hadn't realized there was actually a spare bedroom tax.
2: <laughs> yeah, in, in social housing. Or, or um, that's its informal name. It, yeah, it's its informal name. I think it's not technically a tax. I think it's that you But in effect, that's what get it means to. Yeah.
0: I mean, all this is bringing us towards a certain model, maybe, for housing that is different than um, the one we currently have. And you've referred to it elsewhere as a feminist project, this project, A House for Artists. And I wondered if you could expand a bit on what that means beyond how you've just described it.
2: I think it's, it is it is those things that's, that there's more potential to share or define different structures um, to live with extended family, or share with a neighbor, or share childcare with a neighbor. On one of the floors, which we didn't see today, but you can open the doors between apartments, which I think are we would happily have done with a, another family with with a child just to share the load of childcare. And uh, there's also the working from home that these apartments are intended as places where you can work from home in different ways. So um, the living rooms are big enough to have space to work from home. Um, this COVID showed us that most people were like, perching on the side of their bedrooms somewhere Mm -hmm. Um, because most living rooms according to normal space standards and normal design approaches barely have space for a desk even so there's not even that slightest bit of give Mm -hmm.
0: and the reason that extra space is possible isn't because the flats are any bigger than the the minimum space standards it's simply because there are no corridors or hallways
2: exactly so that's seven or eight square meters that you lose to a hallway you just add that onto the living room, and that means you have space to subdivide the living room as well and make an extra workspace or a more informal division. Um, so there's there's that working from home aspect, which I think hits women more than men as well. That you uh, that the home can be more ambiguous, more sociable, a place of discourse. Um, uh, encounter that it's, it's not this thing that's locked away for the man to retire in at the end of the day after he's been out all day so I think it's, it's um, I think that the privacy and the communality aspect comes into it as well
0: mm. It's so exciting to think of feminist architecture as being about where the soft spot in the wall might be to make a new door mm-hmm. between flats or how high the upstand on a window is uh, or how much glazing in fact there is on a front facade i feel like these types of concerns are entirely architectural and spatial and yet so obviously social in their consequence and yet the discourse of feminist practice and design often seems to ignore (laughs) these very kind of prosaic questions. And maybe it's, a, maybe it's an invitation actually to recover a feminism within architectural design itself. I feel I feel that a lot with this project. I feel like a lot of optimism for the kind of discussions it might enable, especially among students. I mean, maybe we could go there. How, how do you bring these concerns to a student audience, or how do you animate the urgency of these ideas among students. Maybe it links up a few things
1: you've asked about art practice and how, what impact that has and you're saying about certain forms of um, politi- politically driven critical practice. Um, I guess what we're always trying to do is you're trying to say that we, in a sense we're doing a kind of Activism, right? But the activism is entirely expressed and developed through, as you've called it, prosaic things, right? The language, the grammar, the output is to do with the things that impact people's material life. So, right. literally, where is the door? Yeah, literally. How wide the is the walkway? Exactly. Exactly. It's literally that stuff. And, it's, it, and it can be, because we've had sort of 40 years of, of a kind of critical practice schools, right, which has been very important, right, to completely try and change the curriculum. Um, There probably has to be room for the idea that the actual devices you use to engage in that work can be literally just construction, right, and space, and architecture, and I guess that's what we try to do with the students. So it's not this either or, um, right, it's not either Either it's architecture as autonomous discipline or it's social practice, you know?
2: Yeah, I think we, we let our students work very freely actually in terms of what they, how they like to work, so like we're not opposed to say parametricism. <laughs> if it's a kind of parametricism that's, that's, that's aiming for it's not just you know, about it's certain, not it's not formal, but it's about complex systems. Uh, complex systems and trying to understand something. So whatever a student brings to us, I think we're quite open on
1: that. Mm. Yeah, we like to, like, for, yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, there's a problem. That, so when we initially started, uh, I mean, I was still not just to ask a whole bunch of people in the same generation, were interested in really building things, right? And I think that was a little bit to do with the deficit of uh, the formal education one gets, right? And also the early experience in offices where you're
0: doing illustration rather than construction, right? Um, you're kind of compensating through practice for a deficit in education. Yeah, or early yeah so, 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 so
1: that's definitely an issue of, of the kind of de-skilling of architectural education and also, also of um, uh, younger members of the community, like what, what their jobs are, right? simultaneously at the same time, you have to have, like Astrid's saying, quite a free, a, a place to think very freely, free of assumptions or try and break assumptions. And so we're trying to constantly balance those two out, right? Mm. Because if you go straight from con- just construction, 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 I think that can be very limiting. Um, but equally, if you don't land in, like you say, the width of the door, being a, a, a political ish, issue, then also, it's a little bit useless. The big thinking potentially.
2: The width of the walkway is determined by having twenty centimeters for plants, one point one meters for access, and eighty centimeters for furniture, uh. which we thought <laughs> was the minimum to be able to use it really well.
1: Hmm. I mean, that something while
2: that sort of still bringing in enough light. <laughs> so that's
1: I think I think something <laughs> worth saying is something that. Can I say something that drives Astrid mad is double yellow lines mm. Mm. and this idea of the instruction rather than being intuitive, right?
2: Yeah, we like instructional spaces in the UK. Yeah. We make all our streets instructional. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's a plethora of line work on British streets, yeah. um, but then in, in this case it's about a suggestion or an invitation, but with a, a high degree of flexibility built in.
2: Yeah. Um, Exactly. A lot of things are made possible. And I think if you go through a process of sort of testing, and you make sure that at least sort of 20 different arrangements are possible, then once once you've established that, then it's you can be fairly sure that even more are possible. And sure enough, we came up with about 10 different kitchen expansion arrangements, but uh, in the house, we've already seen two that we hadn't come up with. So it's um i think it is possible to design in a way that is specific but still allows a lot of things that you don't expect to happen Mm -hmm. and i i think for something to be really flexible and adaptable the bits that you put in place are important so i think it's hard to have total flexibility without some kind of framework but you really have to test that framework quite rigorously Mm -hmm. to make sure that people can then use and expand it in their own way.
0: When you're talking about testing these possible reconfigurations or, or uses of a space, this is when I start to think about Steinberg. And, Nick, what you've referred to in one of your lectures is the deranged order of his drawings. Um, and that word derangement has come up again in that we live in model's introduction where at the end of that intro you've invited the reader onto an airplane and we're ascending into the clouds and we look down onto, onto the city and um, you're referring to the deranged order of the termite colony. And I think this this kind of insane, crazy abundance of possible... <laughs> ways of living is so exciting and so evident in Steinberg's drawings. Could you talk a bit more about why his work is meaningful to you both or what you draw from it besides that? He's an architect who
1: became an artist, right? And then he, uh, there's also Lino Vobadi who's an architect who became an artist who became an architect who yes. became an artist who became an architect. Yeah. And they, they met each other. They, they uh, so I think, as far, as far as we can tell, because they lived in Milan at the same time. And they both have this drawing practice, mm-hmm. right? This kind of quite funny drawing mm-hmm. practice about small observations. I was trying to find one of Astrid's drawings in here, but this one, um, this one doesn't really ha- have, have it.
0: There's
1: something
0: going on there. Um, might be.
1: Anyway, the sun's it's, it's, <laughs> many other sun's rings. Yeah, so um, yeah, I think what's really, I remember Astrid once did a drawing of some plates and on tops of plates, on top of plates, on top of plates, and you get ever, ever smaller cups and ever smaller cut cutlery. And there's something in drawing you can sort of collapse scales some somehow. So the scale of the city and the scale of the tabletop can be the same thing. Um, and it's that kind of quality that really one can get somehow from a from a source. On the one hand you're looking at like a small deed of someone's life, but at the same time it's a kind of epic um, scene or it's the other way around, you're looking at an epic scene but actually it's somehow a strange little moment in life, right? And it's that quality, right? This kind of strange collapse of scale that is... And also
2: just um, critically picking up on the absolute weirdness of what's been established as normal,
1: mm, exactly,
2: um, and realizing, wow, that's absurd. Actually, that thing that everyone says is normal, that's a weird experiment. Mm-hmm. And I think quite like that.
1: Yeah, I think that's 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 it. It's sort of healthy, productive skepticism, mm-hmm. and a type sort of humour. One being able to point out the absurdities of life, but also yourself and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's somehow important. Because also the building, it, like if you look at the building, I don't think the building that, I believe, you know, doesn't take itself too seriously somehow, I hope. Anyway, you can be the judge of that. But um, for us that's the quality that Lina Balbadi's drawings, Steinberg's drawings have.
2: Yeah, the, the creature like um, that you said when we were outside. I think maybe that's something from from those kinds of drawings as well.
0: It's interesting that drawing becomes a tool for teasing out these absurdities, the absurdities of the world as it is, hmm. um, and inviting a way of thinking about the world as it could be. It reminds me too of the writer George Perec, who listeners of the show will be familiar with, uh, and links us to practices like 6A, and Tom Emerson in particular, who's written about Parekh in the past. But, um, I mean, one of my favorite assertions of his, of Parekh's, is that we must question our teaspoons. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so ridiculous on the face of it. <laughs> but uh, even the smallest quantum of convention, um, stands to be interrogated somehow. And it sounds like for the two of you, that interrogation begins through the drawing.
3: Yeah, Yeah. I
1: think so. I think also, yeah, and conversation. I mean, Douglas will murder me for saying this, maybe don't piss me But Douglas Murphy will say, hey, you and Astrid, I imagine you two when you're together, you don't really talk much. (laughs) And it's like, no, no, it's the opposite. When it's just the two of us, we talk non-stop. (laughs) And it's, it's, it's yeah, it's an incredible amount of analysis, and then yeah, the drawings are the way to really kind of really talk about how something, what its strangeness is, or how it might work, or how it might not work. Right? Uh, just one looking at the time.
0: Yeah, we have like five minutes left, actually. I realize this has been way too short, but also I'm kind of fine with accepting the constraint. Maybe there is one more question or a way to end this interview and hopefully there'll be many more is on self-presentation in a way hmm. so apparatus as a practice has reached some kind of transition uh, it's in a moment where it's receiving more attention following high-profile awards or nominations whether it's the the sterling prize you were nominated for or the Neve uh, Brown Award, which you won last year. And I think with that comes more attention and more desire from a public for you to speak on behalf of yourselves and your work. And I'm just interested, at the beginning of the conversation, there's a phrase that came up a few times, which was that the building speaks for itself. And I think a lot of architects would like to think that and have a lot of faith in what architecture can say for and on behalf of itself. And yet at the same time, in this moment of a project being received, and in this moment of a practice kind of evolving into a more public role in a way, the architect at the same time must speak on behalf of the building. And I wonder what that transition has been like for the two of you, how you're growing into this role as a more public practice. And I have to caveat that by saying that your website right now has absolutely nothing on it. <laughs> Provocatively,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've we've not been um, we've not been that good at social media or um, having a website. <laughs>
1: well, it's because we weren't that interested, in it, I'd say. I mean, I mean, yeah, that's not the answer
2: mm-hmm.
1: you're looking for. But I guess, I mean, the very direct way we have decided that we want to write in public on and try and use it as a way to. Help discourse on certain topics.
2: I mean, like with the topic of feminism, for for me, for us, it was always a feminist project. But I suppose it did occur to me that unless I say so, people might not know. (laughs) I used to avoid talking in public at all, (laughs) and now I'm actually uh, trying to do it, Um, partly because I think it's important that quiet women speak as well, (laughs) but um, I think also to talk about these intentions within the building that um, maybe other people aren't talking about but that were there and are important.
1: Every design is making, whoever it is, a design is making a kind of intended or unintended statement about the world. Uh, So every building is a kind of is saying, oh, this is what the city is like, this is what living together is like, right? And people might say, oh, I'm not intending that, but that is what it is, always. But it's definitely the case that we've done, we've done a few projects and, and, and uh, a few different things, but we've definitely found um, that it is quite helpful to kind of begin to talk about where, what is the purpose of these ideas and where they're coming from. No, but we, we did, like like Astrid says, uh, says it. it, it It did occur to us that um, some things the building cannot say, so you have to say it.
0: Nick and Astrid, thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you. Thank you, thank you.
0: (laughs) Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I make the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scaffold_Podcast. If you like the show, spread the word, leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Nick and Astrid. Special thanks this week to Lorenzo Iandelli and Jack Swanson. Thanks as always to Scandalin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.